This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today we have on Noah Colburn, who is currently an anthropologist, professor at Bennington College, and author of Bizarre Politics, Power and Pottery in an Afghan Market Town. He focuses on political structures and violence in the Middle East and Central Asia. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for inviting me. Great to talk to you. Yes, and of course our lead researcher, Luke Bianco. Uh, pleasure to be here. Noah, um, to, to kick it off, like, was there any global events or personal experiences that first sparked your interest into studying political structures and violence within Middle East and Central Asia? What first captured your attention about those regions? Well, my research really began as an anthropologist looking at the politics and social relationships within the bazaar. So how do people within a marketplace interact with each other? But the coincidence of the timing of my initial dissertation research, I went to Afghanistan in 2005 to begin this research when really the insurgency was in its infancy and was mostly in the south of the country. Uh, When I was there, the war crept further and further north and eventually sort of encircled the district that I was living in. And that's really when the issues of violence and conflict became much more central to my my work. In terms of some of our discussion here today, as time went on, the town I was living in happened to be about an hour west of the largest international military base in Afghanistan. And we could sit, I could sit with my Afghan friends and watch the planes land at the military base. And so I became increasingly interested in the interactions that occurred uh, between the base and local populations, and particularly the contractors that worked on the base. Yeah, yeah. So it definitely makes sense that you have kind of this personal connection to this this visa, given that you had friends in the region that you spent a considerable amount of time there. So we encountered your work uh, in the, the recent paper, The Cost of Working with Americans in Afghanistan, uh, which you have r- written just a couple of months ago, where you detail this uh, special immigrants visa. Um, so we're interested in hearing more about your research on the topic, what this visa is, and kind of the history of, of how it originated, uh, and what that kind of looks like today in the, in the geopolitical landscape. So it's important to stay step back for a second and think about how the United States fights its wars today, because it's very different than it fought, how it fought them in the past. When the United States had its highest number of troops in Afghanistan, it had about 100,000 troops there. It had at the same time, 100,000 private contractors working for it. Uh, In more recent years, the United States have had closer to 10,000 troops and at the same time, 40,000 contractors. So we're talking about a contractor ratio to troop ratio of four to one. That ratio was actually in the opposite direction. There's only one contractor for every hundred troops in the first Gulf War, for example. So we see this massive expansion of contracting. And what we see is that these contractors in the most severe cases are exploited, taken advantage of, And even in more uh, benign cases, we see they oftentimes are denied some of the same rights that uh, the troops would have in similar situations. So I became very interested both in third country nationals who uh, come from countries like Nepal and India and Turkey to support the US effort, but also the Afghan contractors that were there. And in particular, one of the things that we've seen in recent years is 
these Afghan contractors have been targeted by the Taliban for their service to the United States. In response to this, the United States spent up, set up the SIV program, the Special Immigrant Visa Program. And a lot of what I've been looking at in my uh, recent research has been sort of the failings of that program uh, and the fact that it has uh, not been able to deliver uh, what it was uh, expected to when it was set up by Congress initially. And you do a really good job in the paper about talking about how you know, the, the intentions of this program were, were positive and kind of you know, almost mirroring the, how the, the US treated allies from the Vietnam War. You make that great distinction mm -hmm. between you know, how Vietnamese refugees were, were welcomed to the United States or at least had their, their access to the United States more facilitated than, than we see today. Um, but you also talk about this disproportionate impact of who is actually able to apply for these visas and, and who's getting left behind, which I thought was a really interesting contrast. Yeah, and the real problem is, I think, uh, the government had some good intentions when they set up the program, but they didn't give it the support it needed to actually succeed as a program. And as a result, uh, the programs received very few resources over time. And in particular, uh, it was just not set up particularly thoughtfully. So the process is incredibly wrong. It's incredibly, uh, there's incredible lack of transparency about it throughout the process. And so what ends up happening is the wait times are so long that if you are an Afghan that is currently being threatened by the Taliban, there is no chance that you're going to get your visa processed in time to, uh, to flee the country um, and save your family. So currently, those wait times can be between three to six years in terms of how long it takes to fill out the application and process it. Uh, so that's one of the, the major hurdles there. The other hurdle is that the United States really just hasn't wrapped its arms around the problem of contracting and the consequences of contracting. So the numbers of visas that have been allocated has been very low. The resources for processing those visas has been very low. Um, and so ultimately, the only ones who can sort of successfully navigate this very complicated process are oftentimes the, the most wealthy and the best educated. So you also have got a program that's very sort of skewed towards those at the upper levels of society where those who probably need the help the most are also the ones that are, are least likely to get it. There's also a protection aspect. You mentioned about many of the Afghani translators and contractors. They're in close proximity to Taliban, right? And if they hear that, that they were working with uh, the U.S., their family and their lives are in danger, right? So they don't have three to six years <laughs> to wait for that process. Also, with the U.S. troops uh, slowly withdrawing from those areas, how does that impact immigration from Afghanistan and the special immigrant visa? Well, I have to say, in recent years, the, the process, the program has been so slow and sort of uh, mired in, in uh, bureaucratic uh, stagnation that a lot of the Afghans who are most at risk are quite logically pursuing multiple strategies at the same time. So maybe you've applied for the special immigrant visa, but you're also talking to human traffickers who might take you through Iran and Turkey to Europe. You're also trying to apply for a visa in Australia, perhaps. Um, really, the program in Afghan eyes comes across as, as very capricious. You send in your application, you get sort of a form email back, and then you wait, and you wait, and you wait. And this can take 
several years of waiting in, in, in many cases. Um, and in the meantime, the uh, Afghan worker is sitting there at home or in the more intense cases is someplace in hiding um, to protect their family. And, and this can be a really daunting, tiresome process. Um, and, and frankly, the fact that even, even if the visas were being processed in a more timely manner with more transparency, this would allow Afghans to make better decisions. So right now, if you feel you are under threat and you submit one of these visas applications, do you sell your house? Do you sell your land? Do you move to a rental house? Do you tr move in with your cousin? The Afghans don't have the, uh, the information to make these decisions, which then creates a uh, very uh, stressful living situation for them and, and it results in many of them simply fleeing by whatever means they can. Do you think that the troop withdrawal as well, the sort of uh, the immediacy of, of that issue is, is going to heighten those concerns even more and kind of make the consequences of those decisions, which as, as you're mentioning that many individuals don't have the understanding to even know what the these decisions are because of the lack of transparency uh, or is the urgency of those those decisions just going to be heightened exponentially upon troop withdrawal absolutely and it's important to point out that the taliban are targeting those who have worked with the united states the taliban are also uh targeting women who have been empowered in the last uh two decades they're also targeting ethnic minorities like the hazaras who are a Shia minority and oftentimes these groups overlap, right? There were a lot of educated Afghan women who worked for the US government. There was a lot of Hazaras in particular who um, became quite well-educated during this period and, and supported the US presence there as well. Um, and so while the US troop withdrawal is the first step in the process, I think the fear for many Afghans is the US troop withdrawal is going to be the first step in a process where the Afghan government potentially, potentially, we don't know, um, may collapse. Um, and a lot of the alliance that has sort of held Kabul for a while will disintegrate. Um, and this will create fighting between the Taliban and a large number of other groups. And particularly these minority groups, these groups that have become empowered over the last 20 years will be the most likely to be targeted. I think one of the issues is to date, it is not very clear how the United States will respond to this type of political collapse. Will they um, apply diplomatic pressure? Will they continue airstrikes? And because uh, their policy about the future of Afghanistan, uh, a lot of these Afghans are left and sort of desperate to make decisions that will secure their family uh, and secure themselves. This law is sort of a band-aid um, on what is really a, a, a wound that is uh, bleeding profusely um, and is likely to get worse, not better. Talking about improvements to the system, how can we improve this system on a, a policy level? Is it uh, more protection? Is it more funding? Is it just more manpower in this situation to help facilitate faster uh, efficiency through this immigration process. What are some potential solutions to this? So in terms of policy solutions, there's, let me give you them at two different levels. In terms of just this program itself, the structures around it remain unclear. And as I said, the from the Afghan side, they feel almost capricious. 
So for example, if you have worked for the US government, you are required to show documentation from your direct supervisor that you were employed in, in such a way. Uh, and that's quite difficult if you're an Afghan who worked for uh, the US military and then the Lieutenant Colonel that oversaw your work left the country. How do you contact that person? Oftentimes they, I've spoken with Afghans in the middle of this process who have spent literally months on Facebook trying to track down these people to get a letter of recommendation um, from them. So the, the structures that are here um, are uh, very rigid and don't adapt to the situation. So right now, if you are uh, similarly, you need to show that there is a threat to you as an individual, but they don't say if there's a difference between the threat is the Taliban is physically knocking on your door and saying, we're gonna come tonight and kill you, or is it more that you've been having trouble getting employment because of your service to the United States? Those are two very different levels of threat. And yet the program treats those things exactly the same way. Um, similarly, if you were employed for two years, you're eligible for this visa. If you're employed for two years minus one day, you are not eligible for this visa. So the, the uh, structures around it um, could be much more flex flexible and adaptable to respond to those who, who need it most. That's number one. Um, number two, and this is sort of stepping back on a larger uh, geopolitical uh, strategic level. Um, the Biden administration has announced that it's withdrawing troops from Afghanistan, but it has not announced what its policy is going to be uh, towards Afghanistan uh, going forward. So one of the issues is there's a whole generation of Afghans who were born since the U.S. invasion, who have been told by the government, been told by the U.S. government in, term, in their public statements, you should work towards educating yourself. You should work towards participating in this democracy. Um, and for a lot of the women and the minorities that were involved in this process, now that the U.S. is turning away from Afghanistan, there's a real future here where the Taliban could essentially come in. Um, and I, I certainly hope this doesn't happen, but there's a certain possibility in which the Taliban come in and essentially start going neighborhood by neighborhood, door by door, killing the families of those who supported the U.S. presence, whether it was directly or whether it was indirectly by allowing women to vote, by allowing their women to become educated. Um, and if this uh, type of genocide occurs, will the United States step in? Will the United States apply diplomatic pressure? Will the United States ask another international country to intervene? Um, none of that is clear at all. So if you are a um, young Afghan who has believed everything that you were told by the US government, and you've gone off and gotten educated and maybe even worked at the embassy or something like that, uh, you are now left in a very precarious position without a clear roadmap going forward. And if I could just add one more recommendation at the end, mm -hmm. there's also a very severe issue with the way in which the United States is fighting its wars uh, and the fact that we have not thought through the consequences of how we fight wars. Uh, right now, we have a antiquated VA system that uh, does not uh, do well in terms of fully supporting veterans when they return home. But in addition to that, we have these hundreds of thousands of contractors who are entitled to none of those benefits. So the whole ethical and moral obligation that historically we have had as a nation to those who have fought for us has been refigured. And there are not structures in place to 
rethink what those moral and ethical ob obligations are. If you are a contractor who fought alongside the US military and did the exact same job as the US military and you are wounded, um, does the United States owe you some sort of continued medical coverage? Um, it seems like the answer should be yes. And yet not many of these individuals are not entitled to them. And oftentimes the contracting companies themselves are denying them their rights. So I guess looking forward specifically with regards to the, the special immigrants visa, do you see it as still continuing to serve a purpose in its current state? Or is it, uh, you know, as you mentioned, this Band-Aid that from an immigration perspective uh, is, is simply never going to, to cut it um, to really fully support the, the hundreds of thousands of, of contractors in Afghanistan and in other countries that we fought wars as well? I think the special immigrant visa is a very good starting place for a conversation about what our obligations are to those international contractors who fought alongside US troops. It is a process that has allowed some Afghans into this country, but has largely failed to address the scope of the, the problem. So I think it is time for the government and our country to take a pause and say, are we going to act as we did at the end of the war in Vietnam, where we decided to offer a pathway forward for literally over 100,000 of the South Vietnamese who supported our, our presence? Or are we uh, in this new era when we are not going to support our international allies in such a way, and we're going to stand by if, especially stand by if they are being systematically wiped out by a group like the Taliban? Um, I know this is sort of a, a conversation that oftentimes happens in more academic circles, but it really comes back to the sort of nature of um, the U.S. empire. And are, are we going to be an imperial presence um, that sort of uses these other countries and then discards them? Or is there some sort of obligation that we have to these groups? So I think this uh, law has shown really the limits of our current immigration strategy um, for dealing with the true scope of all of those that are involved in America's global wars right now. Right. We definitely appreciate you uh, bringing light to this. Many people don't know that this uh, program exists and the actual conditions that we find our allies in, in, in their countries, right? Um, and it does take a, a moral and ethical obligation from us. And that's the stance that we've taken historically as, as a country. Um, and to be able to continue that forward if we want to keep the ties and keep the connections with all our allies internationally. I'm interested with uh, what you're focusing on moving forward. Projects, any other areas within immigration or international politics that you're focusing on that you think uh, deserves more light? So uh, two different areas that let me just point to briefly. I think uh, the first one that I'm really thinking a lot about, um, back to these international contractors, particularly international contractors from uh, who are referred to as third country nationals. So these are uh, literally the tens of thousands of Nepalis, of Filipinos, of Sri Lankans, of Bangladeshis, who came and did the work of uh, war in Afghanistan. So in Afghanistan, these US bases were built and maintained by these Nepalis, by these Indians, by these Turks. 
in many cases, because this is happening outside the United States, they're actually not guaranteed legal protections under American law. So there's a rather infamous case where um, a series of Nepalis were trafficked from Jordan to a U.S. base in Iraq to work on that U.S. base for the U.S. military. Um, they uh, were killed along the way, and there was a lawsuit brought against the employers, basically charging them with human trafficking. And the court in the United States, the judge uh basically in the, the ruling said, this is a clear case of human trafficking. Clearly the rights were violated. Um, unfortunately, it happened in Iraq. It was done by a Jordanian company to a group of Nepalis. And so there is no American involved in this chain, even though they were being trafficked to work on a base in jobs that are paid for by US tax dollars. So essentially we are contributing to a lot of this sort of exploitation worldwide without a legal safety net to support them. So there, there is one uh, law called the Defense Base Act that does offer some compensation um, for those who are wounded or injured while um, working in service of the United States. Um, and there's some very good lawyers, particularly in Washington, who are, are working on some of these cases, but it's not very well known. And for a lot of the Nepali contractors, for example, that I interviewed, they, they're not aware of their rights under this law. Or So if they are injured, they're not aware that they're entitled to comp compensation. Um, so that, that's one issue that I'm, I think is uh, worthy of a lot more attention. And then I think there is a real, uh, I'm continuing to work on Afghanistan itself and real questions about what is the future of these places that have this sort of massive U.S. intervention that then disappears? And how do Afghans make decisions going forward? Do they turn towards the Taliban? Do they turn towards other Western allies like the EU? Um, and how would a young uh, Afghan today navigate this sort of increasingly challenging and complex landscape? And I think that depends largely on how we treat them. You know, if we show that we, we care and give uh, support, whether it's financially, uh, whether it's protection, uh, it shows that, hey, we're not here just to extract resources or extract information or extract work. We're, we're here to uh, take care of those who help us in our global affairs. So I, I think that's an important note uh, for us Absolutely. to keep as, as a country. Um, but Noah, I, I thank you so much for coming on and just uh, shedding more light in this area. And uh, I'm definitely excited to hear more about new projects that you're working on, any new books. So if anybody wants to get in contact uh, with you or find more of your stuff, uh, where can they reach you? Uh, probably the easiest way is uh, you can uh, check me out on Twitter at Noah S. Coburn. Um, that's probably the easiest way. Um, I'd also encourage you, if you are interested in these topics, uh, I had a book come out a couple years ago called Under Contract, The Invisible Workers and Americans' Global Wars, um, which is a, a good introduction to a lot of these issues. We'll look forward to it. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.